Alright guys, welcome to Radical Rocks. Today we've got a really exciting episode, lots of news, we're going to do the colors of fall, we're going to talk about uh, some silversmithing work, and much more. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things, there were sand and hills and rings. The first thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock with no name, felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, you can find lots of rocks, cause radical rocks are everywhere. That's right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I think this is uh, episode 130-something or another, second season, getting ready to go into our third season. I want to thank you for tuning in to Radical Rocks and going to RadicalRocks.com and subscribing to all our social media, whichever you like. Um, we've got MeWe, Facebook, um, Parlor. we got YouTube videos. Just did one on uh, beautiful huckleberry garnets in North Idaho. Um, they were real pretty. The pictures you can see in the video, um, they took a lot of work, but they look really good in the sun. I don't know how jewelry worthy they're going to be. I might have to do some hardening treatment to them, but I can take you down the path with me on that too when we do that. So some of the news we're going to talk about, a um, whole bunch of news, but we're going to talk about some uh, rocks coming back from the moon, first one since 1970, and a bear, believe it or not, is completely entrapped in amber. This isn't like a grizzly bear or anything, this is called a water bear, one of the smallest organisms with limbs actually, uh, quite an interesting find. And what to do if you find a fossil, latest Mars news, and then our highlights are going to be minerals of the colors of fall. So we'll go through some of those as time allows. And I thought we could get into sand casting. Um, if you are into jewelry and rocks and minerals, sometimes, uh, you know, this is rocks and minerals and jewelry, um, you know, lapidary. And that does include uh, not just grinding rocks, but... Uh, silversmithing and other things so we like to talk about that a little bit if you're interested in that hopefully you are um, give us a thumbs up or whatever wherever you are subscribe and share help us grow the channel you know the deal we are keeping rock hounding alive so let's get right into it and see what kind of exciting things we have to talk about today um this one doesn't want to come up all right nasa closer than ever to finding ancient life alien life that is on mars how are they doing that by looking at rocks looking at dirt um, this article is by the daily beast 
And you can look that up on, uh, believe it or not, Yahoo Sports News. And it says, the title is just what we said. NASA's Perseverance rover is closer than ever to finding ancient alien life on Mars. Melissa Rice, uh, Brigney Horgan, the whatever it is, whoever they are, this team of people that wrote this article. They've got some cool pictures, though. Um, They're still at the Jezero Crater in Mars, huge crater. Uh, I think the largest mountain of Earth could fit inside this thing. It's so big. We've talked about it. But uh, they're still looking at clay, looking at dust, looking at samples, taking little drilling, uh, drilling some of these little stones, getting little core samples. And uh, also, the in, I think it's Ingenuity, the Ingenuity helicopter, the little helicopter that they have is going to be flying some of these little uh, samples up to a pod so that they can come back to Earth to be studied. So I think they did one of those successfully. Um, little rock cores, roughly the size of dry eraser markers. They'll seal them in a special tube, bring them home, and of course when they open those up, uh, aliens will burst out and eat us all alive and we will all be doomed. The end. Or maybe they'll just study them under a microscope and um, give us all kinds of different stories every few weeks. Tell us they're closer than ever before on finding life. But it is very interesting. The topography, the geology, all of that is quite interesting. You can get pictures of this all over. NASA's site has good stuff too. Now, the American Museum of Natural History has a beautiful collection. Gems and minerals shine at the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, This can be found at bronx.news12.com. And they have a video there where they talk about it reopening and let you know that there's over 5,000 dazzling gems and minerals from over 98 countries, fluorescing rocks that you can see that glow in the dark, giant amethyst geodes filled uh, with these amethyst crystals, all kinds of beautiful things, why they're beneficial to us, why we need them, instruction, videos, all through the hallways to educate and inform those who might be interested or drawn to these beautiful gemstones. Now, when you were 16 year, if you when you were 6 years old, think about the coolest thing you did when you were 6, okay? I know some of us had pretty rough childhoods, but maybe even through that, something kind of cool happened to you. Um, or when you were young, and maybe it was just finding, you know, a $10 bill on the ground or Maybe it was an experience with a loved one or something. Could have been a lot of things, right? This six-year-old boy finds a mastodon tooth while hiking in Michigan's Dinosaur Hill Nature Preserve. And you can read about this at todayuknews.com. And the article's there. There's a picture of this. um, Looks like a molar. It's huge. It is a molar. Uh, Giant. They think it is uh, 11,000 years old which was much older than the boy. They, they figured that out. So there it is. Giant mastodon tooth. Very interesting. Now, what if you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you hit a bump 
and you are in like Montana and you're thinking, oh, that thing looks like a cow head. And you find out it's actually a crocodile-like dinosaur head, as big as a cow head, and very rare and in wonderful condition. (laughs) Here it is. You ran it over. You almost destroyed this beautiful artifact, right? Crocodile-like head from this uh, dinosaur, I believe in Queensland, uh, where it was found. Let's see. Also, another one, I think the whole article is about Australia. Another one is about a trilobite fossil that was found at Emu Bay, Kangaroo Island, a marine creature that lived over half a million years ago, or uh, half a, excuse me, 500 million years ago during the Cambrian period, they say. And there it is, a nice fossil of that. If you've ever seen those trilobites, they kind of look like a horseshoe crab. But what do you do when you find these things? Well, the article here, Lighthouse dot mq dot edu dot au has some suggestions what you might do when you find them um try to sell them right away well that could get you in a lot of trouble um so you need to find out who owns the land right so basically don't go looking for fossils if you want to keep them if you don't know the rules okay here in the united states you cannot keep anything um that's not like a sea creature like snails and trilobites and, um, oh gosh, can't even, stromatolites, uh, crinoids, things like that. You can usually keep those, uh, no problem. Leaves and stuff like that are not a problem. Petrified wood, as long as it's not in a protected area, you know, all these things are pretty well collectible on public lands. But if you own the land, then you can actually own the fossil. So, uh, this is what's happening in Montana. There was a court case that was won. And um, so I would say if you want to find a vertebrae or a Jurassic-type dinosaur and you want to keep it, um, then you would do that. But if you found something really significant in a uh, kind of an area where you can't take those things and you find it, you certainly could um, maybe get credit for that find. And you could probably even take a basic uh, class. They usually have these classes that teach you how to assist on these fossil digs and stuff. And that could be very exciting, um, learning more about the past and being able to spread the knowledge. Volunteering helps you spread the knowledge. We do that. Uh, We volunteer. We give our time to youth groups, schools. Uh, I've gone in community events. I've worked with uh, rock and gym clubs, teaching people how to do cabochon, silversmithing, you name it. Um, take them out in the field, show them how to collect rocks, show them what, what's a levorite, levorite there, or what's a real nice gym to keep with them. So just make sure you're following the laws. Um, if you want to keep something, make sure you go to a place where that is okay to do that. There's some pay sites in uh, California where you can get shark's teeth. It's all kinds of sites all over uh, there's a pay site here in Idaho for leaves. Occasional fish fossil is found. And um, speaking of fish, a Utah man discovers a fossilized fish lizard. Fish lizard strikes again at Flaming Gorge Reservoir. Um, my title, not theirs. At sltrib.com. S-L-T-R-I-B.com. And... It is uh, Salt Lake, so I'm imagining this is Salt Lake City, Utah. Yes, it is Utah, and it is written by Jordan Miller, and he tells us and shows us this fossil here, 
where it is a fossilized Ichosaurus that was found. Um, I don't know, Ichosaurus is a fish lizard, but the the name Ichthyosaur, which means fish lizard. So I guess at one time they thought these were fish lizards, but in reality they are just fish. Um, nobody has proven this is a fish lizard. Sorry, hate to disappoint you, but it's a fish. Um, you can see many of these type of animals and uh, people who work out of the Utah Field House of Natural History uh, work with the Utah State's Parks. Excuse me, got to get a drink of coffee. All right, so much for that, right? Let's move on and see what else. Um, we have some sad news here. Anthony, known as Tony Thomas, 1960 to 2021... Um, barely 60 years old poor guy um, he lived in uh, M.A. M.A. was that Maine? Massachusetts in Leverett and um, he is one of our rock hounding lapidary friends here he was very very uh, excited he's a crafter he repaired and modified vintage amplifiers and audio equipment, but he also loved collecting gemstones and spent his time doing lapidary and had an unusually large mineral uh, collection and specimen cut with his own faceting design, which was in the gemstone collection at Harvard Mineralogical and Geological Museum in Cambridge, MA. So pretty cool. Um, he was quite talented in faceting some of these really neat designs um, that you can check out at that website if you want. So now he is not uh, here with us anymore. He is prospecting and rock hounding those streets of gold and heaven, hopefully. All right. Urban sprawl and ghost towns. Now, I think I talked about this recently, but we're going to hit on it again because um, this article did come up again, or it, a similar article, about ghost towns. You know, around the turn of the century, many, many towns sprung up out of nowhere. You know, you could see the old westerns and the gold mining town and the bad guys would come in. At uh, Arch Daily, it's archdaily.com, it talks about urban sprawl and ghost towns and the impact of mining on these cities. And uh, it's written by Matthew Maggananga. And actually, I remember that name. So it is a neat article. We're not going to go into it too, too much because I think we already talked about it. But, you know, in Nevada and Arizona and different um, states in the United States, there's many ghost towns that are abandoned. Once uh, the war came, uh, World War II, a lot of mines were closed. Only strategic metals could be mined, and um, a lot of those mines closed. And as the price of gold goes uh, down and doesn't go up with inflation and uh, other minerals become popular, people move on, and these mines are kind of left behind. With the new regulations and stuff, mining is very difficult and uh, can only be accomplished on a large scale by very wealthy, powerful and uh, politically connected companies. It's just the way it is. But some of these cities actually have become quite populated. Uh, Johannesburg in South Africa, on the other hand, huge gold discovery 
um, where Cougarans uh, came from, I believe. Isn't that where they came from? I don't know. I think that's where they came from. Um, it's, it looks like a giant volcanic hole, and then you have all these multi-story buildings, and it's just built up all around it. It's become a major hub, a major city, built around that gold mining operation. So, uh, yeah, some of these towns do become quite populated, and um, they don't just stay ghost towns. So, there you go. Now, there is a another one of these 500 million year old fossils that was named after uh, one of the band members in Black Sabbath. It's written by Vince Nilsson in the metalsucks.net uh, just came across it in my searches for great stories to tell you or maybe not so great just kind of bizarre and interesting stories I like those too I hope you do too because um, that's what I try to find but they have an artist rendering of this um, evil eel and then uh, the looks like the bass player of, uh, of Black Sabbath with his guitar and this giant eel over him looking uh, quite Black Sabbath-ish. And uh, it seems like they didn't find a whole lot, just like one bone pretty much is about all they found. At least that's what they're showing in the picture. But anyway, a tribute uh, from one of the paleontologists who just loves heavy metal music. He's been naming several new finds after... um, after these rock and roll people and rock and roll albums and things like that. Um, This particular eel came from a limestone in western Russia, and it was once, of course, uh, limestone was once part of the sea at one time when the water uh, covered many, many areas, or those areas have risen high above. And the bear trapped in tree amber. I I hope you want to hear about this because I'm going to tell you about it. So, a water bear is a, uh, maybe you've heard about it. This is a little tiny creature. They are almost indestructible. These things have gone up into outer space and been in a, um, a vacuum with no water, no food, up there for years, and then brought back down, and they're still alive. They, they come back to life. They just put water on their back to life. They have been frozen at uh, way, way below zero, um, like cryogenically or whatever, and for 30 years. And they thaw them out and they come back to life. These things live at the bottom of the ocean where the smokers are, where the water's coming out like 1,000 degrees. They live there. Uh, where the snow is in the coldest of, of the South Pole and the North Pole, they're in there. They live everywhere. These crazy little uh, creatures have been around, they believe, since the beginning of time. And uh, they say this thing is 16 million years old. It's a little bigger than the ones that uh, are of today. It has uh, eight legs. Each little leg has, uh, it looks like about four little fingers. It has a face that looks like uh, an alien predator. Um, it, it, it latches onto things and eats it. It eats other organisms and algae and things like that. Um, it has a uh, ability to eat all sorts of things. It was found in a piece of Dominica amber. 
and you can see pictures of it here if you go to the republicworld.com and you look up the article scientists discover 16 million year old um, tardigrade fossil from tree amber they call them a tardigrade is the more popular name but these things it's also written by Harsh Vardahan these things are also known as other names besides uh, water bear I'll see if I can find it for you um, the heck were they named was trapped in amber they studied it blah 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 there's a picture of it right there in the amber it, it was actually put out on a tweet from George D-V-O-R-S-K-Y Dvorsky I guess and these tardigrades or tardigrades are also known as water birds moss piglets and tardigrades, tiny organisms known for their remarkable durability. The roughness allows them to endure extreme dehydration, harsh cold temperatures, and even damaging radiation. They can live in space, right? The radiation there. If you don't have protection, you'll, you'll be radiated and poisoned. Unusual. They are the smallest animals known with legs that can walk like creatures over 5 million times their size, such as you know, a dinosaur or something like that. Um, yeah, these, uh, this particular type, uh, is not around, but these creatures are believed to have survived any of the situations that wiped out the dinosaurs. Pretty cool. Um, check that out if you want. Next. Rocking on at the Canadian Museum of Nature with new virtual school workshops. So if you are our friends in Canada, um, you might want to look this up. Globenewswire.com. Rocking on at the Canadian Museum of Nature with new virtual school workshops. They've got rock shops uh, online, mineral shops online, workshops online, and uh, such. They want me to click some cookies here for my computer. I don't really want to do it, but they've got a 45-minute introduction to geology, dynamic demonstrations, and much, much more. So if you're in Canada, um, you might want to check that out. I bet you they got it online, too. Museum Education has developed workshops for grade K through 2 on life of the Pacific tide pool. Okay, so that's something different. We want just the rocks. You want the other stuff, you can go look that up. All right. Um, first details about the moon rocks. We talked about Mars. So, the United States was the first one to go to the moon and get samples. <coughs> Excuse me. And nobody's been back um, since 1970. Um, but China just came back. They came back on November uh, 23rd, 2020. And they have about two kilograms of moon rocks and dust. They drilled down about two meters deep. They found areas where they believe there was a volcanic action, and they saw some out-of-place rocks. They took samples of those. Quite interesting. The Soviets also were up there and got samples. But uh, China has these and are studying them. They are trying to figure out why the moon lost its magnetic field. Um, I don't know how they know it lost it. 
if it ever had it or not, but apparently they hypothesized that uh, the moon should have more gravity, which would be bad for us because we need the moon because it's just the right size, just the right distance to keep our ocean uh, currents from being too violent or not strong enough, which actually all life on Earth depends on. So, I don't know. Interesting. All right, guys. What about the rocks and minerals for the colors of fall? Okay. We're going to go through some of these. Um, not all of them, but uh, I will try to go through some. What colors of fall do you like? I've got brown. I've got orange. We've got to go with orange because orange is... Orange is beautiful. I love orange. It's such a warm color. Um, you got what looks like shiolite. S-H-H-E-E-L-I-T-E. Shiolite. Now, if you go to the National Audubon Society Field Guide for Rocks and Minerals, um, they talk about all kinds of gemstones here. This is a great um, kind of a handbook to have to take along and study minerals or learn about minerals or see what kind of rocks and minerals that you might be interested in learning about or adding to your collection. So, 497. Let's see what it says here. Let's see. Okay, shiolite. It is a calcium tungstate frequently with small amounts of malignum white it can be colors of white colorless gray yellowish and orange our color for fall brownish greenish uh, vitreous um, and it has a streak that is white to yellowish distinct cleavage pore um, in two others. Hmm, okay. Specific gravity is 5.9 to 6.1. Uneven fracture. Transparent, translucent, strongly fluorescent. It can have crystals, frequently tubular pseudohedral crystals, including granular compact, high gravity softness, pseudoctrinal crystals. Fluorite, often fluorescence in a blue-white color. So I guess it can have fluorite in it. It's been mined in many locations, North America, British Columbia, Western United States. The largest operating mine is in Pine Creek near Bishop, Inyo County, California, where shielite occurs with garnet, epidite, um, malignite, metamorphized limestone, Fine orange-brown crystals have been obtained from the Mineral Mountains near Millford, Beaver County, Utah, and from the Cohen Mine, Cabeza Mountains, Cochise County, Colorado, or Arizona, rather, and on and on and on. Greenhorn Mountains in Kern County, large masses of uh, pale gray colorless crystallized shiolite weighing as much as 8 metric tons have been mined from the veins at... Athlea, San Bernardino County, California. Wow, all kinds of history on this. Also, Nevada is found in Nevada, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, and other areas. Um, it is an important ore of tungsten, it says. Tungsten is very strategic, used for hardening steel. Of course, 
orange, we could not forget wolfenite. Wolfenite is a beautiful mineral. Um, this is uh, yellow, orange, brown, grayish. Um, it has a white streak. Specific gravity is 6.5 to 7. It's got an uneven fracture. It can be very translucent to transparent. It does have crystals with pseudo tarragonal due to twinning. Um, commonly square, tubular, sometimes extremely thin, infrequently cube-like, also massive, coarse, defined, and granular. Wolfenite is a secondary mineral and usually forms in a zone of alteration in massive hydrothermal replacement deposits that contain significant lead mineralization, barite, sporadolite, and malignite are common associates. Wolfenite also occurs with malignite, barite, and calcium in carbonics or carbonatites. Um, of course, Southwest United States has wolfenite all over Mexico with beautiful bright orange crystals that come from the Red Cloud and Hamburg mines in Yuma County. Um, that'd be Yuma, Arizona, I would think. Um, Mar Maricopa County, Arizona. Fine specimens been obtained in Central District of Grant County, North, uh, excuse me, New Mexico. And perhaps the most exceptional specimens are from Chihuahua, Mexico. So I do believe it is seen with uh, lead, gold, and sometimes copper as well. It can be associated with that. Now then there's a uh, Vandenite. Vandenite is also orange, quite beautiful. Um, 486. See if there's any good information on that. Um, again, it's uh, associated with lead. It does have a small amount of arsenic in it, so this is one you wouldn't want to touch. Ruby red, orange brown, yellow, multicolored. Streak white, pale yellow. Hardness is only 3. Specific gravity 6.7 to 7.2 uneven fracture, very brittle, has crystals, hexagonal, and uh, fibrous, encrusting, compact, or globular. Wow, beautiful red to orange. Beautiful. Um, secondary mineral generally develops the zone of alteration of massive hydrothermal replacement deposits where it is associated with galena, wolfenite, and barite. So the same kind of locations that we talked about before that is where you're going to find it. Um, some other orange minerals here are Legrandite or Legrandite, L-E-G-R-A-N-D-I-T-E. This is orange. Um, also the crystals are long and taller. Um, Orpermint, it has uh, thicker terminated points that look like they've kind of wavy, waved a little bit like a quartz uh, like a quartz terminated crystal but it kind of has a little bit of a wave to it it's not a perfectly uh, it doesn't have straight lines on it and then there is mim mimetite which is uh, has these of course it's orange they're kind of cubicular, elongated cubicular, cubicle um, structures. 
and let's see if we can talk about that for a second. That's one I'm not really familiar with. Um, my Metite. Maybe it's My Metite. M-I-M-E-T-I-T-E. Another lead mineral. Yellow, orange, brown. Um, has a streak that's nearly white. Hardness is only 3.5 to 4. Specific gravity is 7 to 7.3. Um, Pseudo-hexagonal crystals. Slender to thick needles. Rarely tabular and also globular. Reformed encrusting. And it looks like it's the same kind of thing. It shows up with verite, uh, vandenite and barite and galena. It's another lead associated. Um, it is less common than the other minerals that we talked about that are associated with lead. Found often in West Africa, um, South Wales, Australia, Chester County, Pennsylvania, which has globular masses, and uh, Gila County, Arizona, also Mexico. Cool. All right. Let's see if we got any more. Man, the sun's starting to shine in my eyes. Um, the next one is my meteorite. If I'm saying it right, looks like the same. M I M E T. M I N. No, M I M E T. Yeah, it's the same as before. It's just a different picture of it with the longer crystals. Um, and now you have the my metite with wolfenite, so that you know they can be combined. Um, zincite, zincite is another orange mineral. Let's see if we can find out a little information about this. Uh, looks like this one might not be associated so much with the lead, from what I gather here. Zincite, okay, zin. Zincite or zinc? Zincite. Z I N C I T E. Zincite. It's a zinc oxide. May contain manganese and some iron. Deep red to orange, yellow, or brown. Uh, streak is orange yellow. Hardness is four. Cleavage is perfect, one direction. Also, uh, basal parting. Specific gravity 5.4 to 5.7. Very brittle. Hexagonal crystals are rare, usually pyramidal or massive, laminar or granule. Very neat. Um, associated with zincite, with willemite and franklinite. Also, um, very easily distinguishable from cinnabar or coprite. Zincite is a rare mineral, forms along many minerals, but especially with wilmite, calcite, and franklinite in massive hydrothermal replacement deposits. The premier North American locality for zincite is at Franklin and Augsburg, Sussex County, New Jersey. Very interesting. So it is a, a zinc ore, um, and that's what it's used for. Pretty cool. Also, another orange one, they've got more wolfenite. Um, also, wolf 
Finite. Let's see. Is that spelled the same as Wolfenite? F-E. Yeah, that's the same. What else? Then they go into yellow. So, I don't know. I think we'll just leave it for orange for fall. Maybe next time we'll do yellow for fall. Let's talk about sand casting. Have you ever done sand casting? It is really interesting. It's not easy to do. It's something you probably want someone to teach you. Um, just a little disclaimer. I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm just telling you some information about it. Be sure to do your research and, you know, proper personal protection, safety, you know, have someone walk you through it first in a lapidary club or group. Um, so there. Sand casting. Um, you're going to need equipment. The equipment that is typically used is some sort of a manufactured mold or frame. Uh, homemade versions can be can be made as well. Cope and drag, also called the mold frame. These are two parts uh, are identical except one piece has pins that project from one side while the other has sockets that the pins go into. The frame should be at least a half inch larger than the object all around. The frame is a lot bigger than the piece and it requires extra sand and what they call bother. The interior wall should be rough enough that the sand can get a grip. One version uses iron tilted at 45 degrees which puts the wall of the frame at an angle. For most uses it's helpful to have a cutaway gate section. You will need a, a sieve, you will need a pounce ball, and uh, we can talk about that. It's a powder that's used to keep mold sections from sticking together. It can be talc, cornstarch, um, chalk dust, graphite can even be used. It's usually kept in a bag, loosely woven, so you just kind of dust it onto the mold. Okay, that's a pounce ball. Two smooth flat boards that are at least a couple of inches longer than the mold frame. A short length of wood for pounding down the sand. And a couple of C-clamps, a way to hold the mold together. So if you can envision in your hand, or in your mind, um, you've got a picture frame, okay? Um, and it's got two pieces, and it the, you, you push them together, and inside that piece is going to be your mold okay so you're going to have to make your your mold and put it in this uh, in this piece and then clamp it with the boards when, as it dries so let's keep going the sand you got to get the sand you can use any kind of sand but you want really fine clean sand the finer it is the better it is right you don't want big bumps and stuff in your what you're casting. So get a bucket of sand. You can use playground sand or hardware sand. Sift through it. Make sure you get all the debris out. Um, screen it through cheesecloth. Remove the large grains. And then I'm guessing you're going to have to dry it. Mix baby oil, glycerin, or motor oil into the sand by repeatedly stirring. Avoid making the sand too wet. If you goof, you'll need to add dry sand. So keep some sand aside just in case. Test for proper consistency. The consistency of the sand, you're going to squeeze it with your hand, you're going to be able to form it into a ball. Um, you should be able to squeeze it in your hand and form it into a ball and then it should crumble to pieces if you move it around. Okay. 
So you want it to kind of be sticky, right? Remember when you're making sandcastles at the beach? If it's too wet, it just drips and runs away, right? If it's too dry, it just makes a sand pile. So it's got to have just a little bit enough moisture in it for that, okay? So once you have this uh, frame, the, the cope and the drag, the mold frame, you are going to fill it full sand, okay? Set one half of the mold onto a flat surface and fill it with the prepared sand. Pack it down with a block of wood or something and scrape off the surface, okay? So it's smooth across the top. If you filled up uh, a, a cup with sand, you would smash it down nice and tight, pack it down, and you would just smooth it right off to the edge of the cup, right? You're smoothing it off to the edge of the mold, the half, the, the one half of the mold, okay? All right, next you want to set the other mold on top of the first. Dust it with the pounce. That's that material in the bag we were telling you about, the talc, the cornstarch, chalk dust, or graphite, whatever you want to use. You're going to dust that, okay? You're going to lay your model into position. What are you molding? You have a ring that you got. You have a design that you made. You, you can carve something out of wax if you want to do it that way. A lot of people will get a chunk of wax. They'll carve out a design, and that's what they push down into this. It's not about wax, uh, carving wax or casting wax. This is about sand casting. So you imprint it in there, okay? Um, you could do, you can make a disc, right? Anything you want. If you make like a whole ring or something, it's going to be pretty rough. So typically things that are a little bit flatter um, with some detail on it will be better. You're going to tap it down half, about halfway into the sand <coughs> and uh, sprinkle sand over the model and pack it until the second can is all the way full. The second part of the mold is all the way full. And then carefully separate okay, the cans and then pull out the, um, the mold, the, the, the sample, the piece that you had with a pair of tweezers. Okay, Clear away the grains of sand with soft brush or whatever. Okay, Now you set the molds back together and pour the molten metal into the molds using a pouring crucible which is just a fireproof material where you heat up some people do where they heat it up with a torch they'll use a big oxyacetylene torch and they'll just heat up that bead until it's red hot and they'll have um, they'll have a, a, a tool to grab onto the crucible because it's hot so that they can pour it in you know like some uh, like tongs so that they can pour that hot metal in there so when you're pulling the when you're pulling the mold out when you're making the mold and you pull the little piece out that your your sample is you want to make sure that um, the little hole that that molten metal can go into will be there okay that's how you do it so you put it in the clamp you pour the hot metal in there 
and then you can do it. You can cast ingots this way. Um, you can do two-part patterns. You can use wood instead of wax if you want to make a sample. You can do that. Um, pattern making is uh, two-part patterns is complex and demanding art. It's one of the most respected skills of casting. And if you want to make a two-part pattern, you glue two pieces of fully cured wood together with a sheet of newspaper or newsprint between, turn on a lathe, separate the parts, and drill the holes into the pins to realign the pieces. So that's, that's something kind of separate and different. You'll have to look that up if you want to find out how to do that more. If you're casting a heavy ingot, you'll sprinkle the prepared sand in a pan that is about two inches deeper than the ingot that you intend to make, fill the pan half full, pack it firmly, prepare the model, make it out of wood, plastic, whatever, and press it, coat it with the pounce material that we talked about, slide the mole into the sand, about an inch of sand below the model, add enough sand to cover the sides of the model, pack it hard, create a funnel, there you go, you can pour it in there. All right. Um, pretty neat. It says small scale mold frames. Have a friend come over for lunch and see that you can use two cans of tuna. Cut the tops and the bottoms off both cans. Wash them well. Follow the instructions that, that we just talked about. Um, where you have the two pieces together. You put the pounce on either side of the sand. Or at least definitely on the one side where you make your mold. Okay, and that's how you can do it. You can make your own um, sand casting. Okay, um, maybe we'll talk more about silversmithing. I don't know. It's kind of hard to just talk about without pictures, you know, without video or anything to see what's going on. But uh, it is an art. There's a lot of tools and things that you need if you're going to start casting. If you're going to do lost wax. You can do sand casting. Um, you can make molds out of cuttlefish. There's all kinds of different ideas. You can make ingots and charcoal molds. You can make use plaster molds. There's all sorts of different ways to make molds. When it comes to casting, there's a lot of equipment, hard wax, soft wax. Um, you've got organic models like leaves and things like this. Um, there's something called spruning, which you're using uh, your your just another way of casting, um, making the little uh, little bead at the end to be able to pour the. So when you have your mold, you can't just put a ring in there and press it. You've got to have a, a little hole that goes in there, at least one, so that you can pour the metal in there. Okay, like investing. They call it investing. So those clay models are used for that. There's vacuum um, method. Um, you got to calculate how much metal to use. Then there's the burnout, where you burn out the wax. That's you can actually you can cast in plaster with a wax mold. It has a little stem on it that goes to the end of the plaster, so you can pour the silver in there, or gold, or whatever type of metal you're using, and you have to burn that wax out of there. So you gotta get it really hot and get all that wax out. Um, centrifuge casting, that's another way where you spin it, you pour the 
you kind of crank up where the where the mold is going to be. You pour the hot metal into the mold, and then you push you push it, release it, and it spins really fast, and it forces theoretically forces the metal up into the uh, the mold. Now you do it with steam. They, you can do it just by slinging it with your arms. Um, there's double metal casting, implants and stones, cured molds, vulcanizing molds, where you can use pressure, um, molds and hollow castings, wax injecting, all kinds of things when it comes to casting. There's a lot to it. So guys, with that, I'm going to call it an end. I've got more things to do. I thank you for tuning in. Please stop by our website, RadicalRocks.com. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Share with your friends. Help us grow. We really appreciate your support in that matter. And remember, until next time, rock hounds don't die. They petrify. <laughs>